Live from Denver, Colorado with St. Andrew United Methodist Church, it's Ask Science Mike Live. He's got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. He's got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Hey everybody, it's so good to be with you this week, uh, and I'm glad I can speak vaguely in coherent sentences. If you didn't hear on last week's show, I had a motorcycle accident and I'm dealing with a concussion, and so today we are testing my abilities to the limit with a live episode of Ask Science Mike. Hopefully it's going to be good and possibly it'll be a disaster. Either way, let's get it started. My name is Jimmy Hawkins from Parker, Colorado, down the street. And uh, my question is kind of a two-parter, both around artificial intelligence. So, first part is, um, do you think that we as the human race could be ever be overthrown from the top of the food chain by something with artificial intelligence? And part two is, if artificial intelligence is modeled after our own brain, could a machine or something with artificial intelligence be religious right on so a couple of thoughts one I never worry about computers throwing humans off the food chain because computers don't eat so (laughs) what we're talking about is there is it feasible that somehow a consciousness could exist in a brain powered by semiconductors instead of neurons and two if that's the case is there the potential for that intelligence to exceed our own, possibly dramatically. Uh, Anyone who has heard the Liturgist podcast has the inside track on where I'm going with this. Intelligence evolved really slowly in biological organisms. In fact, some evolutionary biologists question the very merit of the idea that intelligence is inevitable in terms of what happens in evolution. But somehow, with the hominids, our brains kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, It still took a long time. In a blink of geologic time, uh, we'd be throwing poo, not brewing, right? Uh, We're we're just this recent, recent upstart in evolution for intelligence. And what we found is the speed by which intelligence is emerging from artificial selection, i.e. computers, is way faster than it developed with traditional neurologically-based intelligence. Now, why is that potentially frightening? Well, Moore's law is pretty exciting. That's the way computers get faster and cheaper all the time. Moore's law means that I've got more power in my pocket, so to speak, than you had in a supercomputer 20 years ago, right? And I didn't mean to just do that as sexual innuendo. But um, (laughs) the idea is, if this curve keeps going, Is there a point where, based on the way exponential math works, computers go from being, like, a bit dumber than us to way smarter than us, okay? Now, the problem is everything that makes your intelligence scary comes from your limbic system, right? Your fear-anger brain, it, it makes you do scary things, violent things with your intelligence. Computers have no limbic system. So the real thing that keeps smart AI researchers, physicists, and mathematicians up at night 
is we potentially could create a consciousness that is alien to us and much more intelligent, for whom's motives we couldn't understand. A great example of this is if you made, uh, in a very short version, an AI that made handwritten cards and you gave it the goal to make the most, the most well-done cards it possibly could, to achieve that goal, it may, for example, wipe out human life, turn the earth into a factory that pumps out cards so it can practice its handwriting, and then turn the whole solar system into planets full of robotic arms practicing handwriting. And like, that's not an evil genius plot, that's just like Rain Man times a billion, <laughs> right? So, now there's this other idea. If your consciousness, as most modern cognitive scientists believe, emerges from the relationships and connections and synapses and dendrites and neurons in the human brain, we could model connections like that in a computer. In fact, we already can. In the largest computers in the world, we can model a number of neurons approximately similar to a rat, which sounds kind of awesome and kind of pathetic, right? You have like a, like a building-sized computer about as smart as a rat. What's interesting to me is if you take the neural mapping of a flatworm and you turn it into software, and they've done this, and you put that software with no further programming into a robot, and you map a motor to the left side of what would be the worm's body and the right side to this virtual brain, and you give it a sensor where its nose would be, with no programming, that little robot can navigate space. That's literally a robot worm consciousness today, and that blows my mind. Now, that makes me think it's plausible that someday we might be able to model a human level consciousness in a machine, including a simulated limbic system. And I'm going to put my opinion in line with guys like Stephen Hawking when I say, that's an awful idea. That's an awful, terrible, the Grinch stole humanity idea. <laughs> because if you take a consciousness and put it into a machine where that consciousness can then modify itself and become exponentially more intelligent think faster, there's no telling what that root of a limbic system may do, and I think that's where you get your classic Skynet destroys humanity. In short, I think digital AI is a bad idea. Now, could AI be spiritual? If spirituality is a collection of innate neurological biases, these are roots in our cognition, there's no reason you couldn't have similar biases in a collection of circuitry instead of synapses. Absolutely, I think machines could both have souls and wonder how they got here. Uh, my name is JD. I'm from Pueblo West, Colorado. And I was just listening to a podcast, and they were talking about South Africa, that they had found recently 15 bones in a burial tomb or something of that nature. And I was wondering if that has any effect or adds to, takes away some of the previous thoughts of the missing link. Uh, there is no missing link. There's no missing link. Because it's in this room. The missing link is sitting in here over and over, and there are probably trillions of copies called DNA. We can slice those bad boys up, and we can trace our evolutionary lineage. You know why? 
because like corn is in your body, like genetically. The recipe for corn is in your DNA. Now, not modern corn, right? But a common ancestor, we can go back and find it. So if you are not a pure lineage of one of the two African populations of humans, congratulations, you're between 1% and 5% Neanderthal. Neanderthals didn't die out. They are drinking beer in Colorado, right? <laughs> so what we're getting at is the fossil record checks in occasionally and somewhat randomly, and here's why. It's actually really spectacular and a rare occurrence for something to get fossilized. And the bones that we have from early hominids are generally pretty fragmented. So for anthropologists and evolutionary anthropologists, the fossil story is constantly being refined. And you could expect in your lifetime discovery after discovery that's going to fill in our picture of hominid development. But that's different than changing the plot of the whole story. Evolutionary biology through DNA forensics, like we can take you all the way back to bacteria. See what I mean? And because, here's the big thing. Species and evolution um, one day you're not Homo erectus and the next day Homo sapien. There's this gradual change and at no point is there just like a clean line between one species and another species. And we watch that happen right now. Chimpanzees and bonobos are on that tipping point. They are just super recently became separate species and can still sometimes what? Interbreed. You wait a few more million years... And if you saw these two populations, you'd say, I can't believe they were ever closely related because the changes are gradual and glacial. So uh, will we get different particulars and specifics and timelines over time? Will it even undermine things we thought we knew with high confidence? Absolutely. But the overall story that life on this planet all emerged from a common ancestor is pretty unshakable and it's in your bloodstream right now. Uh, Doug Spellman uh, just moved here to Denver. Um, when I was growing up, we were taught not to question anything, take the Bible, super literal. Then I got to college. It was a Christian college, and even my faith was shaken there because they talk about you know, the story of Moses, and there's no real historical proof that that sort of exodus even happened. Yeah. And it completely shook my faith. So now that I've got two littles, a son that's three and daughter that's going to turn one, um, I wonder where to balance the, the wonder that is the Bible and that sort of, uh, to, to not smash it by saying, this probably didn't happen the way yeah. it talks about. And so where do you balance like, stuff like Christmas and talking about it literally and the fantasy? I don't know if you've ever dealt with that sort of question before or not. Or... Thank you. That is a fantastic question. Um, it's one that... Um, comes in a lot to the show, and for some reason I haven't addressed. Yeah, you know something? And I, boy, I hope I don't upset anybody. There's no real bear named Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> There's not, I'm telling you. Now, my kids at one point would have been like, liar! We went to Disney World, and we met him. And we took a picture, and we got his autograph. Isn't that weird? A bear signs an autograph. 
looking through his chin. It's very creepy. But, like, my kids went through a time in their life where they just knew Winnie the Pooh is real. Not only that, like, they knew Ariel was a real princess. Because let's be honest, from an evaluation of the evidence, Ariel has more security than the president at Disney World. You know what I mean? Like, it's a reasonable conclusion that Ariel is real. So do, like, I bust on my kids immediately and go, you dummies. <laughs> Ariel's not real. Here's why. Here's why we tell stories like these. When our brains are less developed, we can't understand abstract concepts at all. Try to describe democracy to a two-year-old. <laughs> The people vote, Daddy. Good. <laughs> right? That's it. A two-year-old can't understand democracy, but they can understand judges and presidents and things with what? Faces. And so we have this collection of ancient literature that tells us about the nature and the character of God and the way that people have pursued an understanding of who God is and all these stories, if you will, have faces. So I'm completely comfortable when it's neurologically appropriate for my children to believe Moses was a real dude. I don't fight back on that. But when they start to grow and learn and to question and someone at school says they don't believe the Bible is real, guess what my child just told me? They're ready for a new conversation. You see what I mean? So when I read the Bible, the amount of time I spend thinking about what's historically accurate it's not much. <laughs> I read stories of people of faith who, like me, sometimes stood outside at night and went, how did this all get here? And what am I supposed to do about it? If something or someone made all this, what's my relationship to that thing? And I'll be honest, in that context, the Bible is my jam. When I read the Bible as stories from people who have the same questions I have. It's wonderful. But that's too heady for my daughter when she was four. Now that she's 10, I talk about what she thought about the Bible, what she thinks about the Bible, what I understand about the Bible, and what other people understand about the Bible. I don't build like a house of cards that's going to fall down. I equip her to take her own journey of faith. We should never feel guilty for putting Santa Claus as the face of generosity because that's how children learn that giving and sharing is important, just like they understand that we're part of a faith where this God says, I've put a rainbow in the clouds because you can trust me, I won't flood the earth ever again. My name's Marie. I'm the one who didn't talk loud enough in church this morning because I'm uncomfortable with public speaking unless I am teaching algebra. That is the only time Ooh. I'm comfortable with public speaking. Algebra reference. Time to bring my A game. <laughs> yes, I'm a math teacher, and I'm working on my graduate degree in math. I was also raised in an incredibly conservative um, church. So uh, I actually went to one of Ken Ham's early, early, like, I saw him in person, and he had an overhead projector. Nice. 
And... He's still got it, I think. Okay. <laughs> so, I feel like I got to experience kind of the beginnings of this movement. And then I also was a diehard fan of Bill Nye the Science Guy and watched him every week. And um, I've recently kind of worked through some personal anxiety and issues that I've struggled with most of my life. Mm -hmm. And I remember in my church, there was always this saying of like, they think science is God. And then at one point it was like, no, God is science. In the sense that if you believe God created the earth, why wouldn't you celebrate all these beautiful, amazing, natural phenomenons that we can observe? Mm -hmm. And so, so often I feel like we're looking for proof when in reality, from my perspective, I'm looking for contradiction and I don't see any. Okay. Even though um, proof is very hard, I don't see contradiction. And I think so often, like, there seems to be this innate belief that there's a contradiction. Like, you're a dog person or a cat person, and you can't like both, you know? Because in math, when they say or, it's inclusive. It means either. It means you can have the one or the other or both. Yeah. And I was just curious about your opinion on that. Well, they call me Science Mike, so I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty into science. <laughs> And uh, I travel the country talking about how I met God on the beach, like a true Californian. Um, so I'm pretty cool with God. Yeah, so where's that, uh, why is Ken Ham think there is no contradiction between true science and God? Because what, observational science completely backs up God. His, historical science, which isn't real, doesn't. Which is like a really ridiculous, arbitrary distinction. And I don't really roll with that because, like, you use historical science to believe, for example, that, like, the Declaration of Independence is not a forgery, right? You believe we can rely on an account from the past to be relevant today, whatever. Here's, where the, here's the seed of the Ken Ham thinking. Sometimes the Bible does contradict science. Like, the Bible really does say that trees were made before stars, and astrophysicists go, nah, uh. <laughs> right? Like the Bible calculates pi and it's wrong. The Bible has a wrong calculation of pi. Now, it was a decent, not cutting world leading uh, calculation of pi, but like a decent approximation of pi for its era. So the conflict comes when people adopt a modernist interpretation of the Bible called biblical inerrancy. And biblical inerrancy, like, ruins the Bible. <laughs> It's like, it would be as absurdist if you're like, well, you know what? I went to the UK. I could not find Hogwarts. Those Harry Potter books are terrible. <laughs> like, hey, you might have just missed the points a little bit. Now, that's not to say I am putting the Bible in the category of fiction. Don't, don't hear me wrong. But my point is there are themes in the Harry Potter novels that are more than factually true. So inerrancy was this reaction to theological liberalism where a bunch of people said that God was like a helpful idea, essentially. I am brutalizing that idea for the sake of time. And so they said, 
we got to get back to the fundamentals of faith. And our boy Martin Luther said, Scripture's all that matters. And so you've got to read the Bible as understanding that God, like, dictated it like a boss to a secretary to these people. And therefore, everything in the Bible is perfectly and factually accurate, including the fact, by the way, that the entire human species came from two people, one of whom was molded out of dust, the other was like a really elaborate barbecue from a rib. And it doesn't work. And like, so as I just kind of talked about the last question, like, that actually takes away all of the beauty and mystery and wonderful things about the Bible. Like, so the book of Jeremiah contains historical inaccuracies, right? It does. But it also contains the weeping of a man who says, how can this nation, the chosen people of God, neglect the poor, the orphan, and the widow? And when I turn on the news, I think, how can this country land of the free, home of the brave, neglect the poor, the orphan, the widow, the gay, the atheist, the people of color, the poor, the uneducated, and I think, yeah, Jeremiah nailed it. Like, he might have chronicled the numbers and figures in a couple of battles in a way that disagrees with modern anthropology. Woo! Like, that's the worst thing to look for in that book. And I just think the whole Bible is let out. But I get that some people, for the thing to work, for the thing to have value, they need to believe the Bible is inerrant. So I don't like waste any energy trying to convince people who are inerrantists not to be. I don't waste any energy trying to convince Ken Ham to not be Ken Ham. Frankly, Ken Ham is one of the most people responsible for the success of my show. By calling me dangerous to the church, he sent me like 30,000 subscribers. So, like, one of these days, I'm going to send him a thank you card and be like, Ken Ham. I could use another call of heresy, you know? So, like, there's just what I'm about. What Christ compels me to in my life is how do I address the hurt and the suffering and the brokenness I see that he saw when he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And if, and if Jesus would say that about a brutal, oppressive government that pushed his people to the brink, and then literally executed him brutally. Like, I'm not yet too worked up because somebody doesn't like the way I read the Bible. You know what I mean? Like, that's that perspective shift. So. I haven't followed Ken Ham since the 90s, so I don't need, but apparently it's pretty. I follow him all the time. It's like, I follow him like I follow Fox News. It's cool. <laughs> <laughs> and I, by the way, like, I want to be really clear, and this is one of my favorite things about my work. Young Earth creationists listen to my show and are totally cool. The Ask Science Mike liturgist vibe is not a bunch of people who agree on stuff. I think the thing that ties us all together is we say, hey, what if we stopped screaming at the top of our lungs and started figuring out what we can talk about civilly and no matter what we think, how we can work together to make a better world? And I think that's kind of gospel stuff. Hi, my name is Angela, and I grew up like two miles south of here, um, so I've lived in this area most of my life. 
Um, but I moved away to go to college, um, to a Christian college, had a pretty similar experience of like, I grew up really conservative here, grew up like very biblical and errant, like very literalist and all those kinds of things, like grew up as a young earth creationist and a lot of things like that. And then learned that it was possible to still be a Christian and disagree with those things in college. Um, that wasn't something that I knew that I could think differently and still believe that, you know, like. God is God and Jesus is Jesus and Jesus is the son of God and not believe all of those things. Um, so over the last couple of years um, in being back here again, since doing that, I've interacted a lot with the church community that I grew up in and I worked in the youth ministry there and I really struggled with when is it okay for me to let high school kids know hey, there's more than one way to think about this and when I should let them like come to that the way that I did because um, I really struggled with that because I know that like I wouldn't have accepted that if I'd heard it in high school and it took me, you know, going away to college, having that crisis in college to be able to see like, oh, there's multiple ways to think about these things and still take the Bible and God seriously. And so I really struggle with like when is the time to just let them get there or to say, whoa, like we are literally blocking the gospel from being heard by going into our biology class, gearing up to argue with the evolutionists. Like, because we're literally, I mean, I kept people from hearing about God from being that way in high school. And so I have that fear. So I guess I'm just wondering what your insight is into like, when do we just kind of let that path happen? And when do we step in and say, there's another way to think about this? And you don't have to think that way, but you just have to know that it's okay to think differently. I think intellectual humility, and if you listen to anything I do, you've heard me say this a million times, is admitting I am wrong about many things and I don't even know which things. Like, I start there. In any conversation, if I sense anyone thinks like, man, this guy's throwing down on me, I go, hold on, just so we're clear, I literally have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> this is how I sleep at night, right? Like, I'm a motorcycle concussed fragment of the universe, almost infinitesimally small. I mean, I got lost in the Atlanta airport this week, and I'm there every other week. You know what I mean? So I'm never the fount of wisdom. What I do is I tell people how I make it to Friday. That's all I can do. So in my state of absolute idiocy, I have learned one thing that has made communication consistently easier for me with other people, and that is by following this rule. Before I speak, I test what I'm going to say. Am I communicating honestly without hostility? Am I being honest? Is this my honest perspective? Am I trying to like put on airs? Am I trying to look smart? Am I trying to market myself? If so, hold the phone. What's the honest thing inside me? Two, am I being hostile in any way? And I don't pass go, and I don't collect $200 unless I can hit that litmus test. So if I was with high school students who are saying, we're gearing up for a battle with the evolution teacher, I'm, I would say, do you think that furthers the kingdom of God? And I would listen to their answer. And if they convinced me, I'd go fight an evolution teacher. You know what I mean? But if they didn't, I'd share my perspective honestly with the whole thing in all humility. I don't know that I know more than the high school student. So I'm open to hearing new information. But I'm also, if I've been put in a situation 
where I'm supposed to teach or mentor someone in some way, then yeah, I'm going to give them the best I can. And that means saying, for example, if you at your church believe evolution is false, you have just encouraged people your age to not accept the gospel because that's one of the number one predictors for people that walk away from the faith or reject it in the first place. So is this the hill to die on? Is, that, is this the line where you go, I'm sorry, the gospel's not available to you. You think we were condescended from monkeys. Like, what? That's not even in the Bible. Like, that debate doesn't even exist. I am all about encouraging people amidst their ignorance and their confusion to just try walking after the same guy I try to walk after. There's such a danger when what I call God gives you a new perspective and you feel like you see the world better and it's bigger and it's more open and it's more loving. There's a temptation to become the guru, (laughs) to be the enlightened one, bringing light into the darkness of all these people who think we were created in six days. No, that's annoying. (laughs) My job confronted with the gospel is to radically love people, to accept them where they are, and to just be honest. So don't waste any worry like, can I tell these kids what I think? Of course you can. They're going to have their journey either way. As long as you're not trying to manipulate them, as long as you're not trying to clone yourself into their brains, if you host and I say this with some experience, an open discussion with a lot of people, you would be surprised what happens. Um, hi, I'm Kristen. So I guess we're, we're sitting here enjoying our beers and... Um, I'm so jealous. Root beer flows. <laughs> Why'd you choose water? Just kidding. Um, Brain injury. <laughs> but... <laughs> uh, so we're sitting here enjoying our beers, and then there are other people in the world who, like right now, they could be, they could be being tortured or being enslaved and beaten or raped or, or whatever. Um, and I guess my what I'm getting at is if God is real, this is a very generalized question. Um, if God is real, why aren't the people of God stepping in and doing something about it? So what you're saying is that if we are the body. That's such an inside joke. Like, you had such a serious question, and I literally started quoting evangelical song lyrics. And I feel horrible about it. Okay, so what we're talking about is sort of an applied theodicy, right? The theodicy is why is there evil in the world if God is all-powerful and loving? That's a contradiction. Um, And the applied theodicy is if God is real, why aren't we doing anything about it? So I can foresee a universe where there's a good and patient God who is like, what are you guys doing? Um, and would like to see that happen. But that, that's not actually where, where I roll. Um, so what you just did is you allowed your compassion for someone, which is a good thing, to engage your creative problem solving, which is your prefrontal cortex, which is another good thing, to solve a logical problem, okay? Here's the thing about God as I understand it now. Uh, Logic never works with God. And I say that with some authority leaning into neuroscience. The way God happens in your brain, the way you experience God, is literally incompatible with logic. It turns out 
that way back in church history, when the Eastern church, the Greeks, got really, really upset when the Romans took logic and applied it to God, and they said, you guys, you can't do that. We invented logic. That's not what it's meant for. And the first great schism happened. I actually think neuroscience backs up the Greeks, that God is something we know by experience, and the job of church tradition is to keep rails on it so we don't follow that experience off a cliff, right? I think the Greek Orthodox have beautiful theology there. Here's the problem. We want a logical solution to problems. If God is real, why are we, the church, not doing anything about it? And what I think is the experience of God challenges me to do something about it. See what I mean? So like the wise, if you're not careful, a noble intent can become a reason you find cynicism and then put action in neutral while you work on the problem. And what I have found consistently in my life is God is found only through dirty hands. That I discover God not when I figure out the most elegant solution to a logical problem, not when I have an invigorating theological discussion with a friend, but when I sit across the table from a paranoid, schizophrenic, homeless man and we eat together, and I treat him like a normal person as he dribbles gravy into his beard, I meet God face-to-face in that moment. Now, here's the deal. That makes no sense, right? That's logically absurd. It's inelegant. I would flunk seminary. (laughs) And I don't care because I have literally gone to a restaurant and bought a ton of food and gone to picnic tables where I know homeless people hang out and spent the afternoon and found the gospel there. I've learned God is not a Rubik's Cube. It's not my job to get all the green on one side and then discover God, but God is instead this beautiful, crisp autumn afternoon that invites me to an experience the world, and when I do, I find suffering really soon. And the joy I have in finding that God face-to-face compels me to do everything I possibly can to attack unnecessary suffering in this species and, frankly, lately, in all of life. So, your impulse is good. There's a problem. How do I solve it? But what I think is we shift away from a systematic solution to a logical problem with God and instead resurrect Jesus by acting like he did. So earlier you mentioned the kingdom of God. It's kind of a two-part question. What is the kingdom of God for you? (laughs) I I knew you were going to hate this one. And then number two. You sure you want to ask me about like quantum physics? No. no. (laughs) Well, Well, number two is how does that change with our current ecological crisis because mm. usually the kingdom of god is very the conservative view is that it's very heavenly but then it's, there's been more of a here and now earthly type of thing well if the earth doesn't exist how does that change what is the kingdom of god so. i'm pretty sure this answer is going to be terrible but um <laughs> and here's what like so my gig is i admit it when like i haven't i haven't thought about that a lot so you're literally getting the first thing a concussed brain has invested in that. I probably haven't pondered what the kingdom of God is in eight months. 
Um, but when I think about the way Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God um, and what the kingdom of God was like, and they also always spoke that the kingdom of God was what? Near. That was a long time ago. So Jesus was obviously lying, and I should cancel my podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Or that near was not in a temporal sense and was instead in a metaphysical sense, and I'm really uncomfortable with metaphysics. But what I think, we always have this choice between an evolutionary impetus to serve self and to take care of our own needs or a conflicting and more recent evolutionary impetus to build community and create safety for us all. And I think when we talk about the sin nature, we talk about the tension between the limbic system and the neocortex. The serpent that whispers looks a lot like an amygdala that's afraid you won't have enough. And uh, the voice of the Holy Spirit is much more like the anterior cingulate cortex that says, I know what it's like to need and I don't want to see someone else be in need. So I think when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, what Jesus is doing is inviting humanity into neocortical thinking. Take that, seminary. Uh, Jesus is, is speaking a language, frankly, really early in history. Like, I don't know if you know this, he predates the New Age movement, um, where he's saying the kingdom of heaven is like this. And every time he does, he he shifts the perspective out towards wholeness and towards connection and towards grace and towards forgiveness and towards the neocortex. And so I think we talk the kingdom of God, we're talking about the best potential of humanity to act like Christ, who I believe in some weird way I don't understand was an incarnation of God. It means that this mystery I don't understand had a face for a while so that even I can understand it. And he seems to invite us, if Jesus is like God, then to be like God seems to be to be invited into neocortical thinking and to, on an ongoing basis, surrender the limbic desire to serve self at the expense of others. By the way, what I'm not talking about is you climbing up on a cross and crucifying yourself. That's the danger of this language. So on the one hand, I say don't serve self, but I'm also not talking about, listen, Like, um, I love talking to you guys. I blew out of a church server this morning because I have a brain injury, right? To serve you for the next 20 years, I had to take a break and let my neurons rest this morning, even though that's not really how I roll. You see what I'm saying? It's a critical distinction. Even Jesus got in a boat and went away sometimes. But the kingdom of God being near is an invitation saying, guess what? In any moment... You can make the world a place of peace, the Jewish idea of shalom, or you cannot. Um, Now, that might be an overly simplified, theologians are retching as I listen to the show right now, idea of the kingdom of God. But as a pragmatist, as someone who lost God completely and became an atheist, the stuff that excites me most about the faith is not what could happen after we die, but what could happen if we actually choose to live. I'm Amanda. Um, just Hi, Amanda. wanted to say thanks for all you do. I feel like um, just there's so much freedom in, in being able to think the way that you inspire people to think. So I really appreciate that. Um, I wanted to ask about something that um, was on the Liturgist podcast a couple weeks ago. Inside um, baseball. I love it. The, the sin one. <laughs> um, 
So yeah, you had mentioned something about um, Satan being more of an idea than a being. Um, and so I was just, I've had a few conversations um, in the last couple weeks about about that and wanting to explore more. So I was okay. wondering um, if you could expand on that a little bit. <laughs> okay, easy question. Let's talk about the mimetic Satan. <laughs> so let's be really clear. Like, um, that's a philosopher, French philosopher, theologian, named, his last name is Girard. And I'd never heard of that before that podcast. So, like, my mind was blown, like, at the exact same time yours was. <laughs> because, like, four weeks ago, I was like, the devil, that's not a thing. Like, that's just, that's biblical imagery to talk about our dark side. Um, and why Michael successfully convinced me that the devil is more than the dark side of individuals is by using the word mimetic, meaning mimetic is sociological software that doesn't run on one person, but runs on lots of people. And I, I, there's this book I love called The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. Uh, it's an amazing book. You should read it if you haven't already. And base, it, it posits that all humans, through research, have a need to self-identify as good, but that most humans can make small, frequent moral transgressions and still see themselves as good. And that means that the biggest problems we face, there's no, like, secret... Illuminati driving that. It's us. Why, why do we say that uh, America is a systematically racist country? Because it is. But it's not because there's like, um, believe it or not, and it, I'm going to stand by this statement. The guys burning black churches aren't the main problem. They're an obvious problem, so they make a good scapegoat, and they should stop and go to jail. But the real problem is a systematic, unthinking, unconscious function wherein white people live in white neighborhoods and raise property values. Totally on accident, right? I want to move to Los Angeles, and what do I do? I go on Zillow, and I look at school zone ratings, because what? I have privilege, and I want my kids to be what? Privileged. And guess what I do by doing that? I deprive poor schools of tax income. I was walking through a neighborhood recently in Brooklyn with a friend, and it was a black neighborhood, and this person, this friend of mine, was nervous because they were rough-looking people. And I told my friend, I said, listen, they're afraid of us. And my friend was like, what? And I said, we're colonists. We come into poor neighborhoods, and we gentrify them, and the next thing you know, they have to move out of their house because they can't afford the rent and they're the least able to find new lodging because they're at the bottom of the economic ladder. That's mimetic Satan. That is the unthinking automatic actions of people who are just trying to get paycheck to paycheck and are not evil. But out of that collective sleeping comes the accuser. And so the kingdom of God invites us to wake up and say, guess what? Maybe the fact that in most cities in America, a quarter of the children go to bed hungry more than three nights a week is more important than your child's systematic test score. Whoa! Guys, that's the gospel. The gospel is waking up and saying, in what ways do my automatic, unthinking actions shut other people out? Because what you saw over and over and over in the stories of this man, Jesus, 
was someone who went to the most poor, the most oppressed, and the most marginalized and said, I'm with you. The person that white Americans claim to follow went to a Samaritan woman alone and had a frank, open conversation with her and invited her into his kingdom. I dare say, and I don't care if this is controversial, that today that story would make more sense told as a black trans atheist, someone that far out of who the religious say is okay, and Jesus said, hold on, they're with me. So that's the mimetic Satan. I think it limits Satan to picture a guy with horns and a pitchfork because it's actually much more insidious, much more evil, and much more a part of all of us than anything as simple as Lucifer. (laughs) So, thank you. Everybody, it's been so great talking to you this week. I want to let you know that Ask Science Mike would love to come to your community. You can go to AskScienceMike.com and learn more about that. I also want to let you know in the coming weeks, I'd love to see you in Storyline in Chicago. I'd uh, like to see you in London at Belong. If you're curious about where I might be going, just go to AskScienceMike.com and click on events. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll see you next week. Woo!